Welcome to the American College of Mohs Surgery podcast series, Conversations in Mohs Surgery, where Dr. Thomas Kanakstat, academic dermatologist and Mohs surgeon in Cleveland, takes a closer look at articles published in the dermatology literature by speaking with the authors and researchers involved. The podcast is an extension of the college's online bibliography, a searchable high-yield article reference library aligned with the Micrographic Surgery and Dermatologic Oncology Fellowship Curriculum, accessible to ACMS members at www.mosecollege.org slash bibliography. Listeners can suggest articles for inclusion in the bibliography or guests for this podcast by sending an email to info at mosecollege.org. That's info at mohscollege.org. Thank you for listening. Hello, this is Dr. Thomas Knackstead once again for Conversations in Mohs Surgery. Today I'm going to be chatting with uh, Dr. Joe Sabanko from the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, Joe is the Director of Dermatologic Surgery Education and Associate Professor of Dermatology there. Joe, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thomas, thanks for the invite. It's great to be on. So um, I want to talk about one of the articles that you just published, and uh, at least as of this recording, it's still just available online, titled Low Recurrence Rates for Challenging Squamous Cell Carcinoma Using Mohs Micrographic Surgery with AE1, AE3 Cytokeratin Immunostaining. And uh, it seems a very relevant topic as we've all started to recognize that there is a subset of tumors that's definitely more high risk than our run-of-the-mill squamous cell. And while we recognize them, we're not always sure what to do about them and how we can improve our management. So why don't we start off, Joe, with you just giving us a a brief summary of of the study and what you all found. Sure. So I I think it would help to give the background behind how this study came about. About two years ago, our research fellow and I and the team, we looked at the 6,000 squamous cell cancers that we had treated for the preceding eight to 10 years or so. Uh, We wanted to identify when we were using our immunohistochemical stain AE1AE3. It's been standard practice uh, between Chris Miller, myself, Thuzar Shin, where we would use immunohistochemistry for what we thought were the more aggressive squamous cell cancers, but then there were other instances like incomplete excised tumors coming in for treatment or tumors adjacent to scar <clears throat> or tumors in patients with chronic lymphocytic leukemia. So we, we did a deep dive and we looked at the 6,000 squames that Chris and I had treated, and we found that about 7% of those squamous cells had accompanying immunohistochemical staining. And uh, this was an abstract that was presented at the SID about a year ago. What we found was that of that 7%, the tumors that were more likely to be used and treated with Mohs with accompanying AE183 stain were tumors that had perineural involvement, tumors that were embedded in SCAR, CLL patients, tumors with moderate or poor differentiation, and larger tumors. And so sort of, it was clear that many of those factors were part of the squamous cell staging. So BWH, AJCC, those are factors. Um, But what stood out to us was just how high the odds ratio was with the poorly differentiated tumors. It was a 23 times uh, increased rate of use of immunohistochemistry. And that sort of complemented our clinical impression. The the tumors that we find most challenging to treat with our H&E stains with Mohs are the ones that have single cell spread 
the ones with infiltrative pathology. Uh, so that was instructive to see, like, this is when we're using it, but the elephant in the room was, does it work? And what we then decided to do is say, okay, let's take these 400 or so tumors that had immunohistochemistry and identify, did those cancers recur? And that's basically this paper. So of those 400 squames, we had follow-up data on about 350 of them, which is a decent N. Of that 350 cohort, about three-quarters of them had at least one high-risk factor. Uh, we looked at, as a primary outcome, the Kaplan-Meier local recurrence for five years. And the five-year recurrence rate was 2.5% in our cohort of 350, with, again, a preponderance of those tumors being intermediate and high-risk tumors. I, I think what I tease out from the data, when you sort of look at the distribution of tumors, if you look at the tumors that had one high-risk factor or more, there was a 1.5, 1.6% local recurrence rate. So the tumors that were the most aggressive actually did the best with the immunohistochemistry. And when you compare it to other cohorts, uh, it's favorable or better. And I think this dovetails really well, Thomas, with the study that you guys published looking at intermediate-risk squamous cells showing really excellent local recurrence rates for the tumors that had one high-risk factor. Uh, with Mohs or standard excision. But the second thing we tried to look at is, you know, a secondary outcome was, you know, were there clinical pathologic features associated with local recurrence? And really, we didn't, we didn't really see that there was an association between that. It's, you know, the tumors in our cohort that were most likely to recur actually um, were the lower risk tumors. And I, I think it's because of the way in which we've implemented immunostain. We have patients who have field cancerization uh, and so we're using an immunostain to identify if there's cancer in a scar or not. But for those patients who have studded SCCIS, let's say on the scalp, um, in two to five years when there's a recurrence abutting a scar, you know, we included that as a recurrence. Whether or not that would be a true local recurrence, what we found was that, you know, all of the almost all the recurrences, actually all of the recurrences were in the dermis. So um, the T3 cohort in this study showed, you know, out of the 10 patients who had um, greater than three or four uh, high-risk factors had no recurrences. And I think that this is something that uh, it's the first time that local recurrence has been um, demonstrated in MOS with immunohistochemistry. And it's hopefully something that we and, and those in our field can build on. Yeah, I, I think it's uh, a very necessary study. And uh, in a minute, I want to get into the nitty-gritty of, of the actual IHC. But Sort of if we stray from the data, because I don't think your data answers this question, but what's your subjective impression? Um, when you look back, you're looking back at cases that had H&E and IHC. And uh, just for the sake of the podcast, IHC will mean we're talking about our pan-keratin markers. How often do you find that the addition of the immunohistochemistry changed management in a way beyond what you would have accomplished with, with H&E? I, I understand it's not a question that your study was necessarily designed to answer, but just going beyond that, what's been your, your impression? Does the immunohistochemistry addition give us the ability to chase after cancer that we might have missed with H&E alone? And uh, an imp other important question is, is the immunohistochemistry giving us confidence to call the cancer clear that we might have chased after with H&E alone? And uh, in looking at our original sort of investigation 
um, we found that there's a two times higher likelihood of using immunostain when two or more Mohs layers were performed, highlighting that there is subclinical spread with these more aggressive tumors. So, so that is helpful, but we also see that we're using immunohistochemistry more commonly with tumors that are coming in with old scar, that the cancer could potentially be embedded in that scar or scar can mimic cancer. Uh, unless we go back and do a chart review, it will be very difficult to determine whether or not we stopped taking layers because the IHC gave us confidence that there was no more cancer left. But I think that this question really answers the thing that we would love to, to sort of um, define is when is IHC beneficial to the Mohs surgeon and the patient? Because it's helpful for some of these high-risk tumors where you can add the immunohistochemistry on with your first stage. So a priori, you know that patient has one or more of these risk factors that will benefit from IHC being added on. But there will be times where you don't begin a case with IHC and you'll want to add it on for your first stage because there's dense inflammation or in your second stage, you might suspect perineural uh, involvement and you'll want to add it on later. Um, for those readers who, for those listeners who haven't seen the IH, IHC uh, cytokeratin stain, the analogy I can give you is that when you're using HNA and you're encountering these single cell spread tumors, these infiltrative pathologies, uh, it, it's almost like having blurry vision and the immunohistochemical stain is like putting on a pair of glasses and it makes it a much crisper, well-defined analysis. And uh, it's something that for these higher risk tumors or for scenarios where we're, in, we're not fully certain, we feel like it, it is a tremendous value added. I, um, I want to differentiate or distinguish the use from uh, what most of our listeners are probably more familiar with, which is IHC with uh, MART1 and similar antibodies for melanoma. And in that setting, you're sort of employing an algorithm where from the get-go, you're using both H&E and immunohistochemistry. By and large, that's not what you would be suggesting for squamous cell carcinoma. Is that correct? No, we use the cytokeratin as a supplement to the H&E as we would with a MART. So the protocol that we use for our melanoma is that we'll take a debulk. Um, that debulk is for melanoma, stained with H&E in the MART, and we'll take a Mohs layer concomitant with that. And the using the debulk and the Mohs layer and the two stains gives you an ability to really map out in a tumor in a really meticulous way. And with these high-risk squames, we'll debulk it and also take a concomitant Mohs layer look at it with H&E as well as looking at it with the AE1, AE3 cytokeratin stain. Um, and it, it really, if you take a slide that has identical cuts and overlie the cytokeratin onto the H&E, with a, a pen you can, under the microscope, really dot out where the exact correlation is. So for example, if you've got a sensory fiber on H&E where you say, I'm not certain if that's perineurium or there might be some keratinocytes attached to there. You can dot that out on 5X under the scope, overlie that H&E onto the cytokeratin slide, dot the cytokeratin slide out, and then pull back up to the scope. So you're really getting a one-to-one -one comparison in real time. That, that sounds like it, it would be quite helpful. And I think, you know, you've already alluded to the main times this would be valuable, be it in the dense inflammation of, of CLL, be it with uh, identifying true perineural invasion or squamous 
and scar tissue as well as with variable histologic differentiation. When, when we talk about the histologic differentiation, obviously one of the risk factors I worry the most about is that poor differentiation, probably even more so now that it's not included in the eighth edition of the AJCC for a number of reasons. And I guess for those who would be newly employing uh, cytokeratin IHC, couple of questions. Why the AE1, AE3 cocktail? And how reliable is this for non-keratinizing squamous cell carcinomas? Are you ever worried about having a poorly differentiated SEC that won't stain with this? Those are excellent questions. And I think they're intimately related with one another. So the AE1, AE3 gives you an opportunity to stain both the high and low molecular weight cytokeratins. And it's uh, going to stain anything that's ectodermally derived. So uh, coming from the epidermis, the folliculosebaceous structures will stain the eccrine gland stain. So it's, it's selective to the extent that you still have to know what you're looking at. Um, you need to be able to identify that even sometimes the secondary antibody, as with the MARTs, for those of you that use the MARTs, you can get some of those macrophages picking up the secondary antibody. So the staining plus the pattern will tip you off. I can tell you that an overwhelming majority, uh, it's going to be over 90 to 95% of squamous cell, whether high, medium, uh, high, moderate, or poorly differentiated tumors that we treat will light up. The, the one incident or the one, I'd say, scenario where it tends not to falls into that undifferentiated pleomorphic sarcoma category where you know, it, we believe that they tend to arise from atypical uh, fibrosanthomas. And there are some folks that believe that those undifferentiated pleomorphic sarcomas are squames that are so undifferentiated that they, they don't line up with any stain. So, so that tends to be a challenging scenario where um, you know, a whole host of clinical things can be done to ensure a, a good patient outcome. But for the overwhelming majority of squames that we see, these will light up. How do you end up incorporating this into your daily flow? And what I mean by that is that when I uh, consent my patient with, let's say, even what I presume to be an intermediate risk T2A like Brigham and Women SCC, I can with some confidence tell them that their first layer will be processed and they'll have a relatively quick turnaround time to uh, reconstruction and discharge. Are you using a protocol that falls within that time range or how do you adapt your process to the longer staining required for the immunohistochemistry. Thomas, I, I, what you just said is music to my ears, and I hope that for a future podcast, you might be able to teach us all on how to <laughs> create a system in place where the processing is so quick. I, I think that both the flow of our clinic plus the way in which we try to set expectations for many of these folks who have the higher risk tumors especially the larger ones. If a patient comes in with two to three centimeter diameter squame, I'll often counsel them that if we're going to use H&E alone, that the tissue is going to take an hour to an hour, an hour and a half to get processed. When we're using cytokeratins, similar to our MART protocol, we counsel patients that it's going to be a minimum of two hours getting processed. So I think that that may be unique to our clinic and flow uh, that we've established. Um, I know that there are, for example, for MART protocols, rapid staining, and we, we've tinkered with our protocol to stain the tissue. And what we find is that the intensity of the staining truly is best 
uh, with what we currently have in place, which is it, it adds an hour to the processing time. Uh, hopefully over time, that would be something that um, we can more reproducibly cut down in time. But uh, as of now, uh, these, these patients will tend to be there for, for uh, longer portions of the day. And the counterside to the patient experience, I guess, for practitioners trying to adapt this or considering it, much like with, with Mohs, I find Mohs for, for melanoma occurs with a frequency where one may have one to two cases a day, and we can oftentimes accommodate for that longer processing time. How, how does your histotechnology staff, your Mohs tech staff, incorporate this into, your, into their flow? Do you have a dedicated person just doing the IHC, or do you have multiple uh, technicians, or just give us a sort of twenty thousand foot view of of pen? Yeah, I, I think that we we've caught lightning in a bottle and have a very fortunate lab where there's four to five techs going uh, with multiple cryostats and tissues getting processed from multiple surgeons at any given time, and we do try to triage to identify the number of complex cases coming in for any given day. But there's not one particular tech that is designated the IHC tech. It's they're all sort of proficient in in doing this. And it's something where I'm sure that there are ways to improve our protocol. But uh, we do have a lab where everyone is is able to cut the tissue. You know, the cytokeratin tend to be cut, need to be cut at a thinner uh, microns, which tends to be more challenging, especially with the marts. But um, it's something where I, I think for those who have smaller labs, my, my recommendation would be to have a system in place where you can maybe take some redundant cones, have your techs sort of practice on that. Uh, I do think that it is helpful to have a uh, derm path nearby to sort of run through and, and vet a number of cases that you read, make sure that the tissue is being stained uh, appropriately. And then, as you had mentioned, maybe start out with uh, a case here or there. And as you build confidence, you can scale that. And that's something that we've done. So the protocol we have right now where, you know, probably about 15 to 20% of the cases that our team sees on a given day is a melanoma. And it's, it's usual that um, on any given day, we'll also have one to two complex squames that any of us are treating. So there's four to five immunostain cases going on any given day. That was not the way that it was 10 years ago. So I think building slowly and with confidence is something that we would encourage. You really have to make sure that the quality is there. But once it's there and you have confidence, you can, you can scale up. And are the uh, IHC slides manually dipped or do you guys have an automated immunohistochemistry stainer? We have an auto stainer. We do. Okay. One of the things you mentioned in uh, the sort of types of tissue that can be stayed with these pancytokeratin markers is also anything of follicular origin. So do you see this having a purpose in the management of, of basal cells or desmoplastic trichoepithelioma or other difficult to clear follicular tumors? Yeah, great great question. That's actually another abstract that we had um, presented a year ago looking at the the basal cell sort of use of AI, IHC with basal cell. The percentage of cases that require it is, is much less than squame. So if we had done 
6,000 squames in eight years and 7% had the AE183. I forget what the number is, but it's, it's closer to like 1% of basal cells that we've treated. But those that benefit uh, are the sort of single cell infiltrative tumors. Those that um, are, uh, those of you that encounter tumor in periosteum and other fascial layers recognize that sometimes crushed lymphocytes can mimic uh, infiltrative basal cell. So using that IHC in those scenarios really is worthwhile. Uh, it's similar to squame tumors that are being treated in scar tissue, basal cells that that can have perinolal involvement. Actually, a uh, gentleman two weeks ago had a triply recurrent from curatage basal cell on his neck that was wrapped around the greater auricular nerve. And that was just a recent example of how the uh, AE1A3 allowed me to chase that tumor with a greater deal of confidence because not only was it wrapped around the larger nerve, but it was wrapped around some higher up sensory fibers. And, um, you know, it was something where the, it gives you just an increased confidence in the layers that you're taking. And similarly, when you're in deeper planes, confidence that you're not leaving tumor behind. Right. No, that that's um, understandable and um, probably a good use for basal cell as well. Are you finding that you have immunostains that you're using for other things, extra mammary Paget's disease, DFSP, Merkel cell carcinoma. You know, if you look online and you attend meetings, it seems there's a, a broad number of things that have been treated with MOS with or without immunostains. Other stains and tumors you found to benefit from them? I think our hierarchy is such that the most common immunohistochemical stains we're using are MARTs. So about 15% of the tumors we treat in clinic are melanoma that are not desmoplastic, and the MARTs are our workhorse there. When we encounter the desmoplastic melanomas that don't light up with MART, we will use our SOX10 stain. And the desmoplastic melanomas are an entity unto themselves because those are the pretty much the only melanoma that we'll treat with slow MOs just to have even more definitive, more greater levels of confidence that's being cleared. But by and large, we're using the MARTs on melanomas, MIS and invasive, SOX10 for desmoplastic melanomas. For all Merkel cell cancers, we'll accompany the H&E with the CK20. For all extra mammary Paget cases, we'll accompany the H&E with the CK7. As I mentioned, for these intermediate and high-risk squames, we've got the AE1, AE3. I think the immunostain that is has been published on that I think we are not so we don't feel so favorable about is the CD34. We treat a fair number of dermatofibrosarcoma um, protuberans. I think we'll have a publication coming out in 2021 where we've treated in the past decade close to 100 with zero recurrences in that time frame. Some of those cases had accompanying CD34, but as our practices evolved, we find that that is the one stain that has so much background noise that it tends to be less instructive as to whether or not you should be chasing after it or not. And the tumor we find is, is clear enough on H&E where we have singular confidence in that stain. Would you give me a rundown in terms of the complexity of successfully executing the stain? And it may be difficult to do because you come from a background of probably having the most experience with MART1 for melanoma. But in general, obviously, all these stains and all these antibodies are not created equal. So 
Can you tell me what tends to be relatively reliable in terms of uh, implementing a protocol and what tends to be more, I guess, finicky, for lack of a more professional word? Between the, the stains themselves? Yeah, between the stains themselves, you mentioned that the CD34 tends to give you a lot of background noise. If I wake up tomorrow and I decide I want to add immunostaining to my practice, is, is MART what I should start with because it's got the most published data and the broadest group of practitioners doing it? Is a pan-cytokeratin marker easier to successfully create staining in the laboratory with? I can tell you just based on our experience, the, the MART stain for melanoma is versatile. It's going to give you uh, a lot of information. And, and again, to, to give the glasses analysis or analogy, if, if you're looking at an H&E trying to find these melanocytes on frozen section, it's blurred. And I would not have confidence using H&E alone to treat melanoma. When you use the MART, it's like putting on a pair of glasses. Those melanocytes jump right out. Now, the tricky part is, especially for those uh, who are caring for elderly patients with tremendous amounts of actinic damage and background sun damage, the, the MART only gets you so far. And so the learning curve uh, is highest and most challenging for the patients who have melanocytic hyperplasia and for the patients who have background actinic keratoses. So the criteria that we use to determine whether a layer is clear or not is density of melanocytes, nesting, follicular extension, pagetoid spread. Patients who have melanocytic hyperplasia, it can be quite challenging to say this is a run of melanocytes that is appropriate versus this isn't. This is too uh, close for comfort, and we're going to take more. And and I encourage those out there uh, thinking about implementing IHC for melanoma. Our group published uh, in the JAD probably about five years ago our methodology of how we use a debulk to map out what the cancer looks like in the center to then help you map out whether or not you're going to chase after the cancer on your Mohs layer. There have been a whole host of other great uh, pa papers come out in the past you know, 10 to 15 years you know, detailing their experience. So I, I think any of those papers would do a good job, but we strongly encourage using a debulk to help you identify what the baseline level of actinic damage is. The patients who have the actinic keratoses will have pagetoid spread on their MART stain. And so that is where the overlap of the H&E and the MART really help one another. Because if you see some parakeratosis on the MART with underlying pagetoid spread, and you go to the H&E, you say, oh, that's not melanoma, that's AK. So, so they really, it is really critical to pair those two. Uh, I can tell you, you know, I'd mentioned for DFSP, the CD34 is a, a muddy stain, and we prefer not to use it. Uh, I can tell you that the CK20 is a, a wonderful stain for Merkel, and, and we won't treat Merkel cell cancer without the CK20. You know, the, the tumor in it itself looks, you know, it's got those uh, lymphocytic mimicking uh, neoplastic cells, and, and the CK20 really lights it up. And those cancers tend to have infiltrative patterns. So similar to um, the, the MART protocol, where we're treating melanoma with a debulk and using that to map out the cancer, for Merkel cell and DFSP, we will use that same technique to see what the cancer looks like in the center, and then ink the debulk so that if there is cancer extending to one edge on our Mohs map, we'll know when we're looking at the Mohs layer, does this correspond to where it looked like it was spilling over on the debulk? It, it's a really inexpensive but tremendously valuable tool uh, when using these IHC stains.
And yeah, I, I'll circle around and certainly um, a shout out to that JAD publication uh, from from your group, uh, as well as a notice that once the ACMS is back in session, there's always a great morning session or two on implementing and setting up an IHC component to your practice for those who are interested. Sort of putting on your, your hat of Director of Derm Surge Education, what is your sense of the broader adaptation of immunostating amongst most surgeons and sort of the barriers that you see people having to implementing uh, immunohistochemistry staining? Yeah, that's a great question. We do think that it's the future, and that's where these clinical outcomes papers, I think, are so critical. The early sort of uh, stages of IHC associated with Mohs demonstrated that these frozen sections will stain, and it demonstrated that these tumors will highlight. And so I think as the melanoma outcome papers were published to show, wow, we're, we're getting less than 1% local recurrence, and that's a lot better on the head and neck and these other specialty sites, there, there's a greater inertia to sort of make that the standard of care. We're not there yet for melanoma, but I think that's where we're headed. And for our poorly differentiated squamous cell patients, you know, the historic local recurrence rate for high-risk squamous cell is greater than 15%. And in, in this paper that we've published, you know, in 350 uh, intermediate and high-risk squamous cell cancers, we had less than a 1.5% recurrence rate um, for those tumors. And, you know, when you sort of drill down the poorly differentiated squamous cell, they have a 30% recurrence rate historically, and we've cut that by a tenth. We've got about a 3.5% local recurrence rate for tumors that are poorly differentiated. And it doesn't cost a lot to the system. It's something where an IHC code, it's 88342M, I believe, it's $100. Uh, and so the value that you gain for something that's inexpensive and reducing the local recurrence rate to the health system, is the health landscape is, is tremendous. Um, and for, to as uh, the listeners out there know, local recurrences often lead to poor outcomes, both metastasis and high rates of mortality. So there, there is so much to be said about getting it right the first time, making sure that these cancers don't recur. With regards to education, our fellows will graduate feeling very comfortable in all of them. And the question becomes, will they then implement this in their own practice? I think within an academic setting and a private practice setting, there are areas that are probably easier in one respect. So with an academic center, to be able to come in and have DermPath backup to sort of do quality assurance, I think is fantastic. But that's if there's support there. And I don't know uh, how common that will be, you know, in the various institutions out there. For a private practice setting that uh, we'll see uh, an odd high-risk tumor, the question is, you know, is it going to be worth the investment if the, the complexity of the cancers there skew toward not high-risk squamous cell cancers. But what I would suggest is that moving forward, as, as we sort of bolster up and strengthen our, our most fellowships, we would hope that it's something that would be taught in fellowship. And then as we gain more publications, demonstrate to our partners in dermatopathology that um, frozen section stains stain reliably with these immunostains and patients have better outcomes uh, when done in a thoughtful way. I think that's really a, a, a great conclusion that we, we should be reminded in the end that we're doing these, this and we're making these changes because we do think it fundamentally will improve the 
uh, outcomes for our our patients. And so, certainly, thanks to you and the rest of uh, your pen group for for all the research you've been doing on that. Uh, before we conclude, anything else that you want to share with our listeners in in this topic? I would say the immunohistochemistry is something that can seem quite foreign unless you did it in fellowship and to try and get it off the ground on your own can seem daunting. So I would encourage those listeners out there, you can email me um, and email any one of us at Penn. We're always happy to have discussions about it. Um, we've had a number of our colleagues that are highly respected. We, we think that there are some of the best surgeons out there that have spent time with us in clinic to, to identify, you know, what's the secret sauce? How do, how do the techs um, process the tissue in a way that's reliable? So uh, we'd love to hear it from you guys out there uh, if you have interest in developing this. Um, but I, I would say that this is the future and it's something that I encourage those out there who are already doing it, please study your outcomes and, uh, and publish because everyone out there needs to know. Awesome, Joe. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. I want to thank our listeners for their attention. Uh, the article that was discussed today, once um, published on PubMed fully, will be available in the Mose College Reference Library, which is accessible through the ACMS website. Uh, to all our listeners, please share this podcast with your colleagues, trainees. Uh, as always, let us know how we're doing. We've had a number of podcast guests now come based on suggestions from listeners, so uh, we're quite open to that and uh, always looking for, for new topics. Um, I thank you all, and I hope you'll join me next time on Conversations in Mo's Surgery.